0: Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 29 of the podcast, in which we will discuss chapter 7 of Prince Caspian, titled Old Narnia in Danger. And even the title of this chapter is quite a contrast from the end of the previous chapter, in which the fawns came out to the dancing lawn and danced in the moonlight. Uh, This beautiful portrait of something that is near and dear to Lewis's heart and to mine as well, which is this vision of Christian revelry, of the joy of the Lord, the, the, the jollity of uh, the deeper life, the, the beautiful wildness of uh, being a true Narnian, to use Lewis's frame, uh, that it's the same sort of uh, freedom and joy that comes when Aslan is on the move. In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, the fox and the others host this great tea party, and it's the witch that turns everyone to stone and brings 100 years of winter with no Christmas, but it's Aslan, it's the forces of good that bring joy and dancing and feasting and laughter. And we ended chapter six with that vision uh, and Caspian himself at the beginning of this chapter is still experiencing much of the buoyancy and the, the lightheartedness of these new experiences, the being away from the castle and out into the wild countryside of Narnia. But as the title indicates, Old Narnia is in danger. It is through the course of this chapter that we will see Caspian and company descend into battle against Miraz and his men. And so Lewis turns the focus uh, rather quickly um, from this uh, vision of the idyllic Narnia, the Narnia of uh, beauty and dancing and glory, to the, uh, the discomfort and the sorrow and the gloom of old Narnia in danger, um, which is a rather realistic portrayal that uh, the, the life of Christ, the resurrected life, is not uh, Eden restored yet, that now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. uh, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. So walking through the valley of the shadow of death is a given. That is a a presupposition of the Christian life, that that, uh, in this world you will have trouble, Jesus says in John 16. But take heart, for I've overcome the world. So there is very much this Uh, This dual reality that Lewis is uh, portraying here, that feasting, revelry, joyous gatherings of community, that is true and necessary and real. But gloom, sorrow, fear, discomfort, anxiety, that is also true and also real. And so much of the adventure is uh, determining the straight path between those that we must rejoice and rejoice evermore, but our rejoicing is tempered by the realities of our fallen world that is not yet redeemed and resurrected in its perfect form. Christ has not come yet, but that is the hope of glory that we have. And so at the beginning of chapter 7, Lewis opens, saying, the place where they had met the fawns was, of course, dancing lawn itself. And here Caspian and his friends remained till the night of the great council. To sleep under the stars, to drink nothing but well water, and to live chiefly on nuts and wild fruit was a strange experience for Caspian after his bed with silken sheets in a tapestried chamber at the castle with meals laid out on gold and silver dishes in the anteroom and attendants ready at his call. But he had never enjoyed himself more. Never had sleep been more refreshing, nor food tasted more savory, and he began already to harden and his face wore a kinglier look. And this opening paragraph to the chapter is important uh, because it transitions the scene away from dancing lawn and away from the evening before. And it prepares us for the events of this day by uh, describing the scarcity and the, uh, the difficulty of his new terrain out in the countryside, out in the wildness, drinking nothing but well water, sleeping outside under the stars, uh, living chiefly on nuts and wild fruit. Those things are contrasted with the silk sheets, the tapestry chambers, the gold and silver dishes, and the attendance at his call that he had in the castle. So we see this juxtaposition between uh, the arduous life, the strenuous life, the difficulty and the scarcity of life out in the country, a life of adventure versus the leisure and the comforts of his life back in the castle and all of the luxuries uh, he had available to him there. So this contrast is made where we might naturally find Caspian's experiences in the castle to be preferable to his experiences now out in the adventurous life of the woods. Uh, with the old Narnians. However, what Lewis does is show that uh, the life of adventure, the higher calling that Caspian has taken, the more difficult calling of exploration, adventure, assuming his rightful identity, becoming the man that he was meant to be, born to be, is greater. Lewis said he had never enjoyed himself more, never had sleep been more refreshing, nor food tastes more savory. And so there's something about the gratitude Caspian brings the fullness of joy that he experiences and the robust satisfaction of obedience we're doing the difficulty doing the difficult thing taking the higher road heeding the call that has come to us makes life challenging arduous strenuous Yet it makes life rewarding, satisfying, pleasurable in its holiest sense. And Lewis caps this, this contrast with the final sentence of the paragraph where he mentions that Caspian began already to harden and his face wore a kinglier look. And so how does one earn a kingly look? How does one harden? How does one grow? Well, you grow through adversity, through suffering, through difficulty. And the difficulties Caspian experiences now in the beginning of this chapter are rather small. It's just a a matter of his diet and his experiences sleeping outside and so on. But by the end of this chapter, Caspian will be a king of battle. Caspian will be pitted against the forces of Murez's army and he will be losing And losing dreadfully. We'll see that by the end of the chapter. And so we are being told here what Caspian's path to his kingdom entails. And it entails difficulty. A strenuous experience. A life of straining. A life of working. A life of hardening. And yet this higher calling that Lewis mentions is one that Caspian uh, enjoys. And not in this um, amusement sort of enjoyment, not in a passing superficial sort of happiness, but in a deep-seated satisfaction of becoming the king that he is meant to be. And uh, such is the calling for each of us, I believe, Um, that danger, wildness, bravery, nobility, these are things that are required of us in order to attain the fullness of life that we are destined for. Ours is not a life of coasting and floating and drifting and ease and comfort and leisure. Uh, Rest is important, certainly. Joy, dancing, these things are essential, but they are in this life tempered by toil, struggle, burden, and yet uh, it's a cross we take up and carry in order to honor and obey our maker and our Lord, and in so doing, we walk his steps after him and become more like him day to day. And so this is the opening of this great chapter of difficulty. We meet some new characters, giant Wimbleweather being one of them. Um, And this council is called, Caspian calls this council, and this council is made up of various different kinds of creatures, all of whom have their own uh, opinions, their own desires, their own agendas for what they think ought to be done that might remind you of any kind of meeting that you've been a part of, where it is populated by many different types of people, many different opinions, backgrounds, experiences, and so on. But Lewis here uh, honors the beauty of diversity, that it's Miraz's kingdom that is uh, uniform. It is Devin Brown makes this comment. It's Miraz's uh, kingdom that is prosaic and uniform and homogenous. It is the Council of Caspian that is made up of giants, dwarfs, ravens, centaurs, squirrels, mice, uh, badgers, men, um, and it, it's a it's a beautiful picture of diversity and unity, where it is a is a, a diverse assembly of creatures united by a single cause. That is uh, the righting of wrongs, the belief in Caspian's kingdom, uh, leave Nicobrick aside. Of course, he, he doesn't quite uh, follow along. Um, and an allegiance to Aslan and the love of the old things. This council um, is uh, interrupted by the arrival of Dr. Cornelius, this beautiful plot point that Lewis um, surprises us with where they They sense a creature approaching that is somewhat man and somewhat not man. It turns out to be Dr. Cornelius. He and Caspian are reunited once again. And it's this joyful reuniting. Uh, uh, Dr. Cornelius explains what's happened at the castle, that Caspian's horse returned uh, riderless, which gave away the fact that uh, Caspian is still out there. Miraz sends his men out to find him, and thus the battle has come to Caspian. And Dr. Cornelius escaped the castle to find Caspian to warn him. But before we get that whole backstory, Nicobrick says something that's rather vile, but also really important to note. And so Caspian sees Dr. Cornelius, cries out with joy, rushes to greet him. And Nicobrick says, Pa, a renegade dwarf, a half and halfer. Shall I pass my sword through its throat? And Trumkin rebukes him, says, be quiet, Nicobrick, said Trumpkin. Their creature can't help its ancestry. There are lots of really important points here. The, the most obvious one to be made, I think, is how Lewis puts racism and prejudice into the mouth of his villain, Nicobrick. Now, Nicobrick's full treason and betrayal is not yet. That's a few chapters away where he will completely abandon Caspian and, and uh, become a traitor. Uh, but he, but we've seen Nicobricks sour and gloomy disposition all along. And now we see uh, his vile antipathy against Dr. Cornelius. Um, he calls him a half and half her and asks if he should kill him by passing a sword through its throat. And Lewis's use of that pronoun, its is revealing how Nicobrick doesn't believe Dr. Cornelius to be worthy of personhood by saying his throat, he says its throat as though due to um, Cornelius's ancestry and his lineage, he is dehumanized. He is less than human, he is unpersoned and therefore uh, he should pass his, thor- Nicobrick should pass his sword through its throat. And Trumpkin's response is really revealing as well. So we see Nicobricks racism and Lewis's portrayal of that racism as villainous. Uh, Lewis, I think through Nicobricks shows how uh, vile and wicked this sort of opinion is. And Trumpkin's response is, is enlightening. He quiets Nicobricks and says, the creature can't help its ancestry. Now, uh, he uses its as well, which is a problem. But the fact that Trumpkin reminds Nicobrick that people cannot help their lineage and their ancestry invites a suggestion. Um, I, I believe it suggests to the reader this invitation to see each individual as uh, worthy of respect as an individual that we ought to view persons as, person, as, as a person and not um, connect them to the great chain of being uh, throughout history necessarily. Uh, this is something that Paul talks about in Titus chapter 3. Um, the first part of that chapter, he mentions how uh, at, in verse 3, he says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, and deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So that's our past. That's our history. All, every single one of us has this uh, uh, malicious and ugly history. But in verse four, Paul says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is telling Timothy that every person's ancestry, every person's history, and every person's past is littered with sin and ugliness and filth and villainy until Christ and his kindness and mercy saved us, not because of stuff we had done, but because of his righteousness. So that automatically puts every human being on the same level, that every human being is a descendant of evil. And every human being has his own individual history of evil. And in verse nine, Paul says, a- avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. He says, avoid genealogies. Now, that doesn't mean avoid researching them and knowing them. But in the context of this passage, Paul says, avoid using them as a means of passing judgment on another. We are saved by grace. We are not saved by our own works. We are not saved by our past works. We are not saved by whom we are descended from. We are saved by Christ and his mercy and grace. So, back to Trumpkin, for him to say the creature can't help its ancestry, that's absolutely right, and therefore he should not be judged on account of his ancestry. The grace of God is available to him as it is available to all. And it's in the voice of a villain, it's uh, Nicobrick who espouses the narrow minded, bigoted, racist, and prejudiced views. But the council continues, they discuss whether they should fight or flee. Uh, they decide that a fight is most likely in order. And it is arranged that they will go to Aslan's How. And the reader discovers that in the time that has passed since the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe till now, over a thousand years of Narnian history, Aslan's How is is this great mound that has been built above the stone table what joseph pierce calls uh the golgotha of narnia that the stone table is the place of the cross in Narnian in narnian theology narnian language and so it's this very holy and very profound sacred place that it's decided that they will go and we are reminded as readers of the sweep of narnia's history here what has passed between aslan's death on the stone table and. Caspian's journey to Aslan's how. Listen to um, Devin Brown describe this sweep of Narnia's history. He says this, quote, Prince Caspian is set 1300 years after the previous Narnia story, a time Dr. Cornelius now refers to as the Golden Age. The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe itself occurred 1000 years after Narnia's creation and 100 years into the reign of the White Witch. The prophecies and old rhymes Mr. Beaver recited in the first tale served as markers there of Narnian history's great sweep. In the silver chair, Eustace and Jill must journey with Puddleglum to the ruined city of the ancient giants. Even the magician's nephew, the story of the first events at Narnia's birth, contains Diggory and Polly's journey to the ancient land of Charn. There, as Polly exclaims, everything is all in ruins and even the sun is dying. So we're reminded here of Lewis's great love uh, for uh, ancient histories, lands of great depth and history and profundity. And we think of where Lewis grew up. He was born in Northern Ireland. Uh, He taught at Oxford and Cambridge that he was constantly surrounded by all of these uh, beautiful markers of an ancient past, these Celtic ruins, uh, these landscapes of great British monuments and battlefields and cathedrals and so on uh, that all the way back at the beginning of Prince Caspian, Dr. Cornelius and Caspian bonded over a shared love for the old things. And in the structure of Lewis's storytelling, we see a similar love for antiquity and the old beautiful things. And there's something to be said of that, that uh, if any of you listening has had the pleasure of, uh, touring any old cathedrals or um great sites of uh, of uh, ancient significance it, it is a humbling experience it even if it's a natural landscape like the grand canyon the, there's something deeply magical about being swallowed up by old beauty ancient beauty um, i had the privilege of seeing stonehenge uh, about uh, almost 10 years ago, and it's this this, this experience that photographs don't don't convey. Um, walking the halls of Westminster Abbey, being able to experience uh, great beauty from long ago is a is a worshipful and sacred experience that ought to be channeled back to our Maker, who has presided over this beautiful sweep of human history. And so the journey to Aslan's how with this sort of sacred, not everybody shares it. Um, Nickerbrick and not even Trumkin at this point share that same sort of respect for the old things. They're rather skeptical. But the reader is invited to see it as this pilgrimage to a holy land. And the reader knows what made it holy. It's the place of the stone table. This is the place of Aslan's resurrection, where death itself started working backwards. This is where the White Witch was defeated all those many years ago. And we're invited to journey with Caspian and his friends uh, as they see it for the first time. Lewis describes it this way. On the stones peering in the twilight, Caspian saw strange characters and snaky patterns and pictures in which the form of a lion was repeated again and again. It all seemed to belong to an even older Narnia than the Narnia of which his nurse had told him. And this chapter is filled with these uh, glimpses of ancient wonder. Uh, These, uh, Lewis's heart for uh, runes and legends and medieval writings and uh, old sculptures, these sorts of things are evoked here with Aslan's form, the form of the lion that is repeated in these ancient etchings into the stone. there is a profound love in this book for the endurance of ancient beauty. Ancient beauty, eternal beauty endures. Uh, the, and, and that's that is meant to remind us of the beauty of Christ and his kingdom. He he is the king in all his beauty, and he will reign forever and ever. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he is called wonderful counselor, mighty God. Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. The, um, this beauty that is hinted and suggested, this suggestion of paradise, is, uh, is all throughout um, Lewis's stories here. I had a student who wrote that phrase in one of her papers, suggestions of paradise. And I love adopting that to describe what Lewis is after here. He's hinting and suggesting and glimpsing this notion of the endurance of beauty. The endurance of the story by having it reappear and reappear, um, even if it's underground with old Narnians and with Dr. Cornelius, the keepers of the secret stories, uh, that they truly will not ever die. And now they are making um, this revival as they seek to overthrow Miraz. So they arrive at Aslan's Howe. Uh, Lewis describes uh, Miraz's armies meeting them there and the nights of battle that they will have. Uh, and it's a battle where Caspian and his forces are losing. And it's an important feature of the story that for all of the glory and victory and triumph of the Narnia stories, they are also littered with bitter and ugly and even, um, dull common tragedies and sorrows, the sorts of fears and anxieties and difficulties that, um, are are dramatic in effect with the grand wars but also irritating and frustrating and um and sometimes even seemingly meaningless these little things that seem to go wrong and in the battles we we see accidents and choice accidental choices or um, seemingly small things that happen that cause caspian's army to lose And um, Devin Brown describes that as the bickering and ill tempers that unspectacular discomfort brings. Let me say that again. These are the bickering and ill tempers that unspectacular discomfort brings. And that is a powerful phrase to describe it. So often in our lives, we, we pray for bravery and strength to ward off the great tragedies of our life. But all too often what brings us a sense of disbelief and despair is the accumulation of unspectacular discomfort, the the drama of a broken dish, Uh, the the seemingly insignificant tragedies that make up the minutes of our days, the frustrations, the the quiet fears, the small pains, the annoyances and the grievances that these are the things that Caspian's experiencing, in battle, the weariness and the fatigue of losing day after day, but it smacks not just of losing battles, but of unspectacular discomfort. And we're reminded as readers that these small tragedies require bravery as well; they require hope as well. And they they meet um, as they are losing. They meet at, as in this inner council at the very heart of, the, of Aslan's Howl, right at the stone table. Um, Lewis describes it this way. In the secret and magical chamber at the heart of the Howl, King Caspian with Cornelius and the Badger and Nicobric and Trumkin were at council. Thick pillars of ancient workmanship supported the roof. In the center was the stone itself, a stone table, split right down the center and covered with what had once been writing of some kind but ages of wind and rain and snow had almost worn it away in old times when the stone table had stood on the hilltop and the mound had not yet been built above it." And this is a really wonderful description of this inner council where uh, they're losing the war against Miraz. Caspian and Cornelius and Truffle Hunter and Nickabrick and Trumkin have retreated into the inner sanctum of Aslan's Howl to discuss war plans. And this is a very serious discussion that they have about their greatest desperation, where they are um, on the final threads of their defenses. And yet what the reader sees that Lewis describes is at the very center of their gathering, at the very center of Aslan's Howe, is a split stone table. And I think that's, although they don't draw attention to it, There's nothing like this great prayer to Aslan or anything like that. The reader sees that the the greatest single hope for Caspian's army is embodied in this split stone table. The stone table has been cracked in half. That means Aslan has defeated death. Death itself is working backwards. The deeper magic has been satisfied. And it's the stories of Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy that Caspian looks to, that they're hoping that uh, sounding Susan's horn will bring help of some kind for their present need. But there is a neglect of the greatest hope, which is that Aslan has already defeated evil. The white witch was conquered ages ago by Aslan's death on this very stone table that is right at the heart of this council. And I think there's a, a, a moment of, rebuke for us as readers that how many councils have we held with our closest friends and peers and family members about the latest difficulty in our lives. And we forget that at the center of that meeting, at the very heart of our community as Christians, is the cross. Whatever you are facing, whatever battle you are fighting, death has been defeated. The stone table has been cracked. Aslan has resurrected, all has been made new and uh, they do not reckon with that in this council. Now they're still doing the right thing by blowing the horn and recalling out to Aslan for help, but there is this great reminder right in the heart of their gathering uh, that uh, what makes Narnia beautiful and glorious, the calling of Aslan is uh, embodied, displayed, In this beautiful portrait of the split stone table, like an open tablet of scripture. Here is this table split open for them to read and remember and trust and obey. And so, in the final stretch of the chapter, it is decided that they will blow Susan's horn to summon help and they strategize uh, the best means of. Uh, anticipating the help that might come. Um, again, there are some that don't believe it. Trumpkin believes it's all hogwash. Nicobrick doesn't believe it. Um, and yet, Nicabric, uh, yet, Trumpkin and the other Narnians are willing to go with Caspian as their king to blow the horn. And uh, there's another beautiful uh, implication of, of, or indication of Lewis's um, legend building and world building in Narnia. Uh, where Dr. Cornelius tells them about the three ancient places of Narnia. And he describes them thus. He says, I think, went on the learned man, that they or he will come back to one or other of the ancient places of Narnia, either the, (laughs) the kings of old, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, the kings and queens of old, or Aslan himself. He says, I think they'll come back to one or other of the ancient places of Narnia. This, where we now sit, is the most ancient, and most deeply magical of all and here i think the answer is likeliest to come but there are two others one is lantern waste up river west of Beaver's Dam, where the royal children first appeared in narnia as the records tell the other is down at the river mouth where their castle of care peravel once stood and if aslan himself comes that would be the best place for meeting him too for every story says that he is the son of the great emperor over sea, and over the sea he will pass. So Dr. Cornelius uh, mentions these three ancient places of Narnia. You have the stone table as the most ancient and the most magical place, Aslan's How, uh, where the stone table resides. And then you have Lantern Waste, which is where the lamp post is that Lucy met Mr. Tumnus in when she first entered Narnia. And then the third place is Kerperavel. Which is the king, the castle that Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy reigned in, and where they were crowned at the end of the line, *The Witch in the Wardrobe*. So by the end of the chapter, it's settled that uh, King Caspian will blow Susan's horn, and they will send messengers to each of these three ancient places to determine what help will come. Caspian and company will remain at Aslan's How by the Stone Table. They send Pattertwig the Squirrel to Lantern Waste to check the lamppost, and they send Trumpkin to Care Paravel. And by this point, the reader is, is bringing the threads together to see why Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy found Trumpkin at Care Paravel, because that is indeed where the horn brought them and how Trumpkin uh, got to be there and tell them the story that he's telling. And there's one statement that Trumpkin makes here at the end of the chapter when he volunteers to go, Uh, Caspian's looking for volunteers to go to Caerpiravel to see if anybody comes. And Nicobricks says he won't go, that he's going to stay and make sure the dwarves are given their rights and make sure that they get what they deserve. But Trumpkin volunteers to go. He says, send me, sire, I'll go. Caspian says, but I thought you didn't believe in the horn, Trumpkin. Listen to Trumpkin's response. No more I do, your majesty. But what's that got to do with it? I might as well die on a wild goose chase as die here. You are my king. I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. You've had my advice and now it's the time for orders." Now, although Trumkin doesn't believe in Aslan and in the high kings and queens of old and in the magic of Narnia, not yet at least, he does understand obedience to authority. And that notion gives Trumkin this display of virtue that is worth modeling as readers. That we don't know all of the plans God has for us. And even on some days, we might not be fully convinced of it. And yet there's something about obedience to authority. There's something about walking in faith. Now, Trumkin's is not a faith in Aslan yet, uh, but it is a commitment to knowing his duty And knowing his authority and choosing obedience, he says, I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. You've had my advice and now it's the time for orders. Doug Wilson wrote a book titled What I Learned in Narnia, where he dedicates, uh, I think almost an entire chapter to this notion that Trumkin embodies here about. We may give our advice and we might have our opinions, but at the end of the day, are we willing to submit ourselves in humility to the authority that God has put in our lives? Caspian is his king and he's given Caspian his advice. He told him what he thought, but now he says, it's the time for taking orders and he volunteers to go uh, on behalf of King Caspian to Carapiravelle. And as we know, he uh, meets Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy there, and uh, he begins the path toward faith that we'll see over the next several chapters. Uh, And it came with a submissive act of obedience to his king. And so that is the end of chapter seven. Uh, Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time as we look at chapter eight of Prince Caspian titled How They Left the Island.